0: Welcome to another episode of Do North Outdoors Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. This podcast is brought to you by Sportsman's Guide. Big shout out to Sportsman's Guide. There's a lot happening right now. We're transitioning to fall. And if you need to gear up for fall fishing, for hunting season, check out Sportsman's Guide. They have everything you could imagine for your outdoor needs. Natalie Dillon... How are you doing Hello, today, my I co-host? I am grand.
1: Thank you. Yes, we're yes. in the transition season almost. It's almost. a summer day today, I'm but it kind on. of felt like fall a couple days. Looks like a beautiful week ahead. Yep,
0: I'm holding on to summer. Uh, last week I spent with my family, and we just soaked up every ounce of summer that we possibly could, and time spent together. My my world transitions pretty hardcore here coming up in the coming weeks. Hunting season, uh, I host multiple hunting shows that we produce here. besides life does New not North. slow
1: down for no, you in the fall. Oh
0: No, uh, I have exciting adventures, and we can talk some of that if we want today. But just the reality that life on the road is about to kick in. God bless my wife, <laughs> and I'm grateful for her. Um, but uh, yeah, hunting season is, is a big deal, and I know a lot of our listeners get excited about this time of the year too. But it's still summer, technically, and I think today we should start by cleaning up some of our our mess yeah. so that we keep leaving <laughs> yeah. behind.
1: We so ask we ask for questions yeah. and we
0: never get to all of them. That, so
1: which is thanks to all the great listeners that yeah, we have. You guys we rock love when they engage. Yeah, but we we do have a lot that we're going to cover today. Everything from fall foraging, a little bit of fall fishing and hunting preview. But yeah. we do want to follow up with our conversation from a couple weeks ago. So we were talking about wild game. Uh, recipes yeah recipes catch yeah. and cook and we did get a ton of questions some of them we went through but we wanted to go through a few of those and I think if I remember correctly we finished the podcast with a question that we didn't answer do you remember this we're like oh I'm like we gotta answer this and you're like no we'll save it for next we'll come time come back next but, time wow well,
0: well, lucky yeah, I'm
1: on top this of is my why, game See, this is why
0: a teamwork makes a yeah. dream work I don't remember it and I don't have the questions in front of me right now so you're gonna have <laughs> to worry. carry us here don't worry yes. I got them
1: um Okay, so we were asked at the end of the podcast yesterday if you could only eat one freshwater fish from here on out. Oh. What would it be? and how would you prepare it? And this was from Derek Perlich. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that. Perlich Perlich. I believe yeah. that
0: would be Perlich. Um, yeah. You want to go first? Sure. You're going to go with the boring walleye answer, aren't you?
1: Oh, boy. Well, now I'm not. (laughs) I think, honestly, it would be. If I was going to do one freshwater fish, it would be walleye. And I would do it, like, pan-fried. Not necessarily like a full-on, you know, deep-fry situation, but, you know, little almond-crusted walleye situations, fresh lemon, that type of thing. Pretty good. I just would miss it so much if I could never have it again.
0: Sure. I think if I were to do walleye it would be that recipe that I shared yeah. on last week's show talking about the 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 way that I cook it with the panko crumbs and everything. And I did make walleye when we were up on vacation this last week because we did really well. Nice. And we caught How some nice fish. Yeah. Um it was good. And I there were some families next to us at a different cabin and I had a couple pieces left and I brought it over to them, like you guys want some fresh walleye? We just caught it this morning. And of course, you know, hands in the air. And then the next day they came over. The wife did. She's like, "I gotta know what What? what how did you make it? You know?" And I kind of chuckled well, at myself. Well, open up your
1: podcast app. Well, oh, funny <laughs> We've you got should a ask. Whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I didn't tell her that, but I did explain how I did it. So apparently,
1: other it's people awesome. like it too. Yeah,
0: I've never had anyone say anything other than positive things. Sharing um, the joy. Yes, I think though, if I could only choose one fish, as much as I love walleye there's something so delicious about a bluegill. (laughs) I knew you were going to say bluegill. (laughs) Like they, I don't know. They just, they're so tasty. And I think a lot of people would agree or they would laugh and disagree. I don't know. But sunfish are delicious. And there's no season closure. Um, It's fun because I can take my kids out. We catch, um, the only thing that I dislike about it is that I like, a little bit bigger filet. I don't want to yeah. keep the big ones because I know how important they are to the resource to the lake to release the big ones, but I don't like the tiny ones that mm-hmm. are so prevalent in most of our lakes. So that would be the only reason why I wouldn't want yeah. to be stuck with just a bluegill for the rest Got of to my catch life.
1: catch and clean a few more fish to yeah, get to exactly. a meal for the family. Yeah.
0: yeah, my little meat eaters back home, <laughs> they hammer them and every... Every time I go out, I feel like I got to add another fish to the basket count to be able to feed everyone. And then we cut it off. That's, you know, that's as much as we keep whatever we'll feed there.
1: But Sounds good. I
0: think, I think bluegill.
1: Yeah. Yep. Well, we got a couple other questions about backcountry uh Catch and Cooks. Okay. Do, you, do you have any experience I, I'll get to the questions themselves. Do you have experience in this realm? Oh bit? yeah, I've, okay, I've cool. cooked on
0: islands plenty of times. Yeah, yeah. So
1: so Kirby Parsons asked, what is the best cooking setup for the backcountry or boundary waters? So definitely if you're in the boundary waters, most camp well, all campsites are going to have a grate. A grate yeah, yeah. Um that you can cook right on top of. But do you have any experience? Do you usually cook on like a um jet boil or anything like that?
0: I have. I um I think, you know, let's just say backcountry, no, no equipment other than a grate, Mm -hmm. And that's great in itself. Great. Great. (laughs) Look what I did there. Um, When you, when you're in such an element, you know, when you're on an island like that and you've got obviously a fresh catch, um, open fire cooking is so good. It's so good. You can bring
1: cast iron pan if you're not doing too much, you know, movement, if you're not backpacking or doing too many portages. Yep.
0: And I've done just on the grape before where mm. I put, I leave the skin on. So I clean the fish, but I leave the skin on. Then I just season it with lemon pepper and nice. butter and put butter over the top. I've done that with walleye. I've done that with bluegills, perch. I think I've done it with most species, and that will be enough. You don't need to bring in a jug of oil, you know, because you're, if you're going with minimal weight, you can get away with butter. And which you agree is like the most healthy thing you could eat. We need to get a butter sponsorship for the show. <laughs> <laughs> the healthiest thing you could ever eat is butter, obviously. Go back to our original episode and you'll understand why. And then the second and third, probably fourth, because we keep bringing it up. But anyway, um, lemon pepper is so, mm-hmm. it's just like, and then you've got the, whatever wood you're cooking on and that open flame, it's, it's so good.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure it's like tinfoil too. You can do that yep. just like if you're cooking at home on a grill. So sure. that could be a good lightweight option as yeah, well. Yeah, then you
0: don't need the, ca- the cast iron pan.
1: Yeah. Yep. But definitely any like if you're doing some, you know, backcountry camping, any kind of camp stove device will work. I think the only like thing that you might run into is if the pan's going to be big enough. Because when I've cooked on like a Jetboil in the past or something, they've been pretty small. Cooking devices, but so actually, yeah, if you can get an open fire, that's what so I go. So on that,
0: if if weight isn't an issue and you're going somewhere, I have about four or five years ago, I got a Camp Chef cooking setup, mm-hmm. and like a stove.
1: Camp yeah, stove, so it's yeah.
0: it's got two burners on yeah, it. Yeah,
1: I've got one of those.
0: And so it folds up into this carrying case, and I've got uh, a the grill side of it on one one side, and then it's just a separate attachment. The two burners on it, it stands up on legs, and it's got like. It's just perfect for camping. I take it everywhere. Last week, even though we were at a cabin that had uh, a, a grill, um, I'm drawing uh, I'm a blink right now, Natalie, the
1: Propane? charcoal, gosh, Turkle. charcoal grill. Okay,
0: yeah. Yes, because we're so busy and on the go all the time, I wanted to have an option to just yeah. turn, turn on a flame. So I brought that along. I take it all over the mm. place with me. and. Yeah. That is an investment that I would highly recommend for anybody that camps, because again, you fold this up, you can make so many amazing mm-hmm. meals out there by having just something simple, simple like bringing that along.
1: Yeah, that's what I use yep. for any kind of car camping, and they've got so yeah. many options. They're really, like any outdoor store, the you know camp um, utensil packs that'll be like you know the cutting boards and the knives and the things that roll up in a pack, and then it'll mm-hmm. be the same thing with um, pots and pans that can kind of all condense down into little packs. So. Yeah, that, that's a, probably a,
0: a topic for you know. Like <laughs> no, if no. we do a Boundary Waters special, what to pack and bring, mm-hmm. and how to explore, and and what you need and don't need, because we have a big bin as a group of buddies that I've gone to the Boundary Waters with for twenty plus years. That this is like the bare essentials, Lloyd. You know, <laughs> like this is what we need, what we don't need anything else, and yep. you know that that could be a topic for another time. I yep. guess if somebody's interested, in that maybe they could send us a message and we can. Dig into that because you just went to the Boundary Waters too.
1: Yeah. Hope to be back. What else we got? Uh, So that's probably going to round them out. I do want to give a shout out to Samuel Alexander, who also shared in a question about cooking fish while camping. Uh, We got some more questions about filleting fish, but I think that we got through most of that in the last episode. So check those out. Um, Mel the Notgall, if I'm saying that right.
0: Isn't that funny how people just all the made up names in the social media Yeah.
1: and here we are trying to sound them out. They're probably yeah. giggling at us yeah. at home, but um, yeah, we got a we got through quite a bit of them last week. But hopefully okay. that rounds them out. Should we talk about foraging?
0: Yeah, let's. I know the last time you and I spoke, you were walking down a trail, <laughs> and then you almost got knocked over by this vicious giant orange yeah. thing growing so, on its stump.
1: Funny thing, yeah. So it's truly. If you follow my social media, you've probably seen a lot of pictures lately of chicken of the woods, which I've become recently obsessed with. And I am w- wearing an orange shirt today. I swear it is not in conjunction to that. But maybe right. I'm just inspired. That, I'm just inspired. Not at all.
2: There are no coincidences. No, yeah.
0: not at all. Are you, were you hunting <laughs> this morning,
1: Natalie? Not yet, but I might get out are later. Well, maybe. They're they're kind of everywhere. So so funny story, I was literally on the phone with Travis. We were talking about a little bit about this podcast and some upcoming stories for the show.: Well, we wanted to go and to the
0: state fair, which got <laughs> kiboshed.
1: Yeah, fill us in on that. What happened?: I
0: don't know, Brandon,
1: what happened? Uh, I was on the case
0: liberty to say what happened with that: yeah. Well, next year know. we're going live. <laughs> yes. well, I don't care.
1: We were going to try to do a live show. It didn't happen. <laughs> but on
0: air production meeting, we are going to the state fair next year, and probably game fair, or one or the yeah. other.
2: No. We'll be at the entrance of the state fair, <laughs> just, just <laughs> doing a show to people walking <laughs> <Yes>. in. <laughs> yes.
1: okay. Great Maybe marketing not. tool. I like yes. it. Anyway. Um, so yeah, we were on the phone talking and I was walk walking my family's dog and you, I didn't even tell you really the full story, but so I'm walking down the street just in my family's neighborhood. So, you know, suburban houses everywhere. And I see out of the corner of my eye, this kind of like yellowy orange something growing just on the ground right next to the road. And I thought for a second, maybe those are chanterelles. It was on a stump I could kind of see, but I was a little bit of a ways away. So cross over the road. And as I walk up to them, I have up until this year and still, I don't have much experience at all with foraging for mushrooms in the fall. But I've done a lot of research. I've looked at like pictures and stuff over the years. So I'm looking at them on the phone with Travis and I'm like, I've either, either found a mushroom that's a great fall forage find or something that's straight poison and Mm -hmm. I need to figure it out right now. So I sent him a picture and I didn't even tell you this, but I was thinking, okay, I don't think it's Chantrell's. I think it's a little bit too too bright. In the back of my mind, I'm like, is this that chicken of the woods? But I was too embarrassed to say it because I was like, I think it could be chicken of the woods or chicken of the woods is some like completely different thing and I'm going to look silly. So Uh, I know what's wrong, I know, I know. So I didn't really say anything, but you sent a picture, did some Googling. I think you were the first one to identify it was in fact chicken of the woods. Chicken of
0: the woods. Yeah. And you didn't pick that one.
1: I didn't pick it and I stand behind it. So, well, two things. It was on a neighbor's property and I actually I don't even know the people, so I wasn't just going to take something off their property, I don't but know it where was trespassing, but you were stealing. I know, I know. So, I mostly was on the sidewalk. <laughs> okay. But um but it was right on the side of a somewhat busy road and there is, this is something to keep in mind as we talk about foraging. One of this kind of safety aspects, and and people have differing opinions on this. I've read some reports that that differ, but if you're foraging in places that have high levels of contamination, so like right on the side of the road from like exhaust and, you know, salts and just people. And even you can see in some of the pictures I posted on Instagram, literally a foot away from this mushroom were like crumpled up beer cans that somebody had littered on the side of the road. So it clearly wasn't the most pristine Mm -hmm. nature. I did pick them up, by the way. Um but the beer cans or the yes, chicken to uh to do away with, not yes, to good not to keep. <laughs> um so yeah, I was like obviously, you know, if it's on private property, that's definitely a hard no go anyway, but I decided it probably wouldn't be smart to eat just I'm, in case.
0: So let's say it was on a clean walkway. I would imagine that most people don't know that chicken of the woods is on their property. Yeah. Or they aren't looking for it. Or they wouldn't know what to do with it. So if you see that and you knock um. on the door and say, Hey, I'm Natalie Dillon <laughs> here. And I notice you've got chicken of the woods going on that wood stump over there. You mind if I teach you about it or or take it? It's a great
1: point. <laughs> you know? Or take it. Most <laughs>
0: yeah. people would say, Ah, uh, yeah, you weirdo. Go yeah. ahead.
1: That's but, a really good point. Yeah. yeah.
0: It. I think in the springtime, the morale season is just big deal. Mm-hmm. I don't see the fall foraging as cutthroat. Not that morales are cutthroat, but a lot of times people are like, Oh, I love morales. Actually, you know, we go look as a family. So, you know, cause yeah. I always ask permission. Yeah. I bet if you ask permission to go fall foraging or foraging right yeah. now, most people would say
1: that's a really yeah. good. Point.
0: And actually, would you show me
1: mm-hmm. what
0: it is you're looking for? Cause I'm kind of intrigued by it. So Explain to somebody that doesn't know what chicken of the woods or chanterelles mm. look like and where they're growing right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I'm asking but, you. I'm oh, asking yes. You want me to? Yeah. Heck oh, yeah. okay.
1: Yeah. So I shall do that. I shall do my job. So I will say too before we get there, I did go back out with my nieces and nephews who are all of the like the perfect age to do this. They're three, six, and eight. And my sister their mother, and we went out a couple days later on some family property and we found a huge bunch of chicken of the woods on a stump. So, and I had, once I was showing pictures of my family and my parents, like, I think those actually like, I, th- I think we've seen them around before. So like, yeah. you should, you should go look. Get excited so, Yeah, and there'd been a bunch of rain and we went out and we found them. So now I do have experience actually finding them, harvesting them and cooking to them. So we can, and cooking them so we can get to all of that.
0: Brandon, can you do a, a search on chicken of the woods? And tell us where they grow. I've got it. You've got it. Well, already. you,
1: yeah, you can. You get ready to fact check me. Yep. So, yep. so chicken of the woods. I've been researching them like crazy now. Um, they they grow kind of everywhere this time of year. So it's gonna be late summer to early to mid fall,
0: like October. And
1: yeah, I read like as early as July to. September is the best, but and of you're course talking it can be Midwest. region. Yeah. Yeah. I looked specifically in Minnesota, but yeah. probably around this region. So it's similar to our morale conversations where they do grow on dead and dying trees. Okay. Um, the ones that I found were both actually on stumps. I don't know about the first set that I found, but the second set I fa- found was on our family's property. And I know that that tree was cut down a year ago. So kind of similar to Morel. I didn't find this out, but in our conversation, you'd found some really cool research with or or maybe it was Brandon with Morels that they actually will spring up when a tree is dying as like self-preservation. So my assumption is it's the same the the organism
0: itself is attached to the living tree. And so they're underground, the mycelium, it's attached to the tree root system underground. It's a massive system that we can't see. And when the tree dies, then or is dying the mycelium says we got to get out mm-hmm. and so the fruit is the morel that you see that pops out of the ground millions of spores go in the air they reattach to another living tree and their life goes on and on and on and on and on but you get that window of time when the when the fruit body comes up out of the ground from something that's dying so if that's the, that's what morels I don't know that much about chicken of the woods. And I
1: wasn't able to find that out. So somebody at home, or maybe Brandon, if you have a second, you can figure it out. But I, I did do some research, and I didn't find that anywhere. But my assumption is that because they show up on dead and dying trees, that it's that probably the same the same uh, you know mechanism going on. But they're typically going to be on hardwood trees. So uh, beech, I think I wrote down some other ones. Um, oaks? Oaks, for sure. And I had one other recommendation. I'm not seeing it right now, cherry. So, oak, cherry, and beech is where they're going to be most often found. They're going to obviously grow right up out of the wood, and they unlike morels, do last a very long time. How so long? they Any guess? uh several weeks, I think even up to a month or so, but cool. they'll grow very slowly. And they start to get a lot tougher and a lot drier as they become older. Interesting. So this kind of leads into the the harvesting part. We can talk more about identification, but the outer edges are going to be much softer. And I did notice that when I was slicing through them. So it's actually recommended, and this is what I do, that you slice off kind of the youngest, freshest parts. And let it and keep leave coming behind. back. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like asparagus in the spring.
1: Sure, Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So, and again, I've done this one time. So, I did a lot of reading about it. And as always, people have differing opinions, but I'm that's intrigued. What I did. No, I'm a, yeah. I,
0: yeah, this makes me want to go out and try to figure it out.
1: Yeah. So, I left a little behind, you know, critters can eat it, but it, it should grow back. So, I'm going to go back in a few weeks and report back. Okay. So, yeah, but it's very soft or much softer on the outside, firmer where it grows, um, you know, where it's attached to the the tree itself. Um, And then in terms of identification, it is very orange and yellow. I was
0: going to say, it's the exact opposite of a morel that's hiding from you. This is a blaze orange thing going on the side of a brown. And that's
1: why it's so fun to go look. It's it's really good for beginner foragers because they're easy to see. There's not any lookalikes that are dangerous or really any lookalikes at all. Um, Of course, be careful. Make sure you uh, look at pictures.
0: Yes, double (laughs) check that because... I'm always nervous when something is bright,
1: I, I know because usually I'm, that signals yes, poison danger yes.
0: when when I did a, a, a segment with the lady that eats insects, she's like, don't eat anything that's bright yeah that's that's a no-go. It's terrible to taste. I don't know that there's some of them are probably poisonous, but in the wild world that's how they survive because mm. other wild animals don't want to eat them either because like that's terrible, yeah, yeah, the colors
1: so, full disclaimer for the entire episode. Mm-hmm be certain before you eat anything. Okay. Um, and we're not recommending you try anything that you're not sure about. And even like mushrooms, like many things, some people, it might not work for them there. You know, you could have an allergy or you could get, you know, have an intolerance to it or something. So you want to be careful. But.
0: So the, did you also hunt for chanterelles or should we wait and talk about that in a minute?
1: Let's do that next.
0: Okay. Um, well, I do want to get to yeah. what the, what the chicken of the woods tastes like though because you've now harvested this. Can I give you the really this.
1: shameful answer?
0: You haven't tried it yet.
1: No, I've tried it. It tastes like chicken.
2: You pre- you prepare it like chicken, too, in many ways. <laughs> Seriously. Too. Hence, Have you hence had that before? Yeah, yeah, hence the name. Yeah. That's, yeah. You can prepare it like chicken. It tastes like chicken. The text, Boring. The, the, I know. The no, texture worth, isn't it, that far di- off yeah. from chicken. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool, though, the way it works. And just to just to throw it out there a couple facts you are right uh, hardwoods is definitely something to look for even oak around in this area is, is mm-hmm. a good thing to look. central around. minnesota yeah in the central area um and then there's two different kinds there's the kinds that that that, that um grow from living tree or dead trees you know mm-hmm. that that grow from that But there's also the parasitic kind that yeah. kill trees as well so they there are kill two the tree di- yeah. yeah that will kill the tree so there's two different kinds but you will always find them at the base of dying trees mm-hmm. that's that's just a given. They'll always be at something dying or like Morel's, where it's a disturbed tree. It may not always be dying, Logging. but if I got struck by lightning or something like that. Mm. So it but but it's the same in that sense. But it's always gonna be near the base of a dead or dying tree. Yeah. Have That's you hunted them yourself? I, I just just last year for the very first Did time. Did you find some? Yep, just yeah. a few. I mean, I didn't go as as aggressive as I, I would like to. Like this year I'm gonna go a little bit more, but you can find them. Everywhere. Everywhere. It's so common. Yeah. And it's it's really cool. But you also want to make sure, avoid any with bugs. Unlike morels. And even with morels, you kind of want to avoid ones with bugs too. But especially with chicken of the woods, avoid them. If they got bugs, let it be. Move on to the next one. Something that's clean, something that doesn't. Yeah. Those are going to be the ones that you want to eat. as clean looking ones without the bugs. Yeah. Cool. How did and,
1: you prepare? it? Uh, uh, real quick, along the lines of it being sometimes parasitic it, it's one of the reasons why it's a very like sustainable mushroom to harvest. They, for, they grow really fast. They grow back. Oftentimes they grow in huge clusters. It's not like a small little morale. They're actually like a shelf. They kind of look like, like layers and layers on, on top of each other. And sometimes you're actually kind of maybe helping the tree. They say that by yep. the time it, it's uh, appearing that tree is probably, you know, nearing the end anyway, but in any way, it's a, it's a very sustainable mushroom, but, in terms of cooking, I was trying to fight this whole, it tastes like chicken thing. I was like, no, I'm gonna prepare it like a mushroom. I a lot of people do, and I do now really wanna try this, like chicken fried, chicken of the woods. You bread it and fry it just like it's chicken. You can do it with barbecue sauce. I wanna do like a, a cream of chicken of the woods soup, like a cream of uh, chicken or mushroom soup, but kind of you know use it in place of chicken. But I just wanted to, kind of taste the mushroom the first time I made it yeah. and make sure I didn't cover it up too much. So, Unlike your
0: experience with morels, you want exactly. to really see what it's about.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I just sauteed them and I threw in a few different types of mushrooms just for a little bit of variety. But I sauteed them and just did a little bit of butter. You'd be proud. Um olive oil and then I did some chicken stock and uh flour to make it a little bit you know thicker, kind of like a sauce. And I did a little bit of sage and time because I was just kind of feeling fall-like. And it was delicious. I put it over, I broiled some bread um, with a little bit of olive oil and butter on it, got a little bit of burrata and just kind of made a nice little stack of it all and was able to just taste some of the chicken in the woods by itself. It was delicious, but I will say, the mushroom itself tasted a lot like chicken. Yeah. So less so you, like mushroom, you, you, you more like chicken. you seem disappointed in it. Not disappointed. I just want to, yeah, no, disappointed. Not in the mushroom, but that I wanted to prove everyone wrong and say it doesn't taste <laughs> it doesn't. like chicken. It's just this really luxurious mushroom. And the it's like, no, oh, it kind of tastes like chicken. The name fits. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah, but you're still like, we talked about what, you know, eating fresh, we caught fish on an island. Yeah. You know, like there's something about going out and getting it yourself anyway. Okay. So even if you went out and found your own chicken in the woods, that'd be cool too. Yeah. Yeah. You
2: know, <laughs> it's exactly. it's also a great one for introductory to foraging too, because mm. it is easy to spot. Once you know what it is, yeah. it's really easy to spot. And the taste isn't over mushroomy, you know, like yeah. where it's off-putting to somebody. Because a lot of people just don't like mushrooms, myself included. I'm, I'm not a huge overall mushroom fan, hence the morels, hence the chicken of the woods. They're a little bit lighter on that mushroom overall flavor too. So it's it's just a great introductory one. Do you like Morels? Oh yeah, I love Morels. I I mean, we almost couldn't be friends. I love love Morels, (laughs) I love chicken of the woods, but I don't like an overwhelming mushroomy type, you know, earthy flavor. That's just not my palate. But These are really good. And you can prepare them in so many different ways that yeah. it really doesn't matter. So it's really good for introducing people. Have you ever tried puffballs? No, but I, I've seen some pictures already, <laughs> yeah. and I'm super curious. I don't curious. know if I know what a puffball is. It's, it's just what it sounds it's like. A it's a big
0: white ball puffball. Yeah. It's, it's a mushroom? Oh yeah, yeah, it looks like a volleyball.
2: I mean, yeah. they're just like that, and you cut them. They're solid. You can make steaks out of them cool. and all sorts of things. They look Really good and tempting, but they also look like they'd be scary
0: poisonous just (laughs) just by their weird nature. Yeah, Yeah, they're not. They're also edible. And along with um, chanterelles, which are now up this time of the year too.
1: Yeah. So So what's your experience about those? I've only tasted chanterelles, and I have never found or prepared them myself. That said. My my research tank is full on them. I've been learning oh, so a lot that's about next them. Up on so, your list? yeah, but have you have you foraged for them? One time only. Okay.
0: And when we found them, yeah, I mean they were everywhere. This was up by Bemidji, Minnesota. I went out with a uh, a fishing guide that also is kind of like us where we're just like all the outdoor things, hunting and fishing. Matt Brewer is his name. North Country Guide Service. Anyway, I was doing a story with him for Minnesota Bound and Do North Outdoors probably 10 years ago. So my memory on it's terrible, but we did go mid August and we went into the woods and you know they're they're not they're growing out of the ground. I don't remember them being attached to trees. Mm-hmm. It's like the chicken of the woods is literally on the bark of yeah. the tree. Chanterelles unlike, are out of the ground. Yeah. Unlike the morel that grows out of the ground from the root system, but not attached to the tree that you can see. The chanterelles I remember being Similar to morels in that they were growing out of the ground, and we had a basket, and it's it's a very it's very green out there right now, and you got this basket full of orange, and it's like brighter orange on top, more yellowish lighter on the bottom, and it has kind of um,
1: they do vary in color. Some are a lot like they even get like canary yellow, like very soft, but most are like a sunset orange.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of looks like they have almost like gills or something yep. on the bottom, if yeah, I had to describe it, flat on top. Uh, we did pan fry them with butter. We also chopped them up. We did catch walleyes that morning. and mm. we So we had cast iron, butter, walleyes, chanterelles all together. And it was good. It was delightful. Yeah, we yeah. cooked it out in the woods. And it was just a fun day spent. And again, like you talked about, it's, it's a great way that you can introduce somebody to foraging. Yeah. You can take kids with. Um, you know, it's not an invisible thing hiding. They're they're orange, yeah. they're yellow, they stand out. And I thought the chanterelles, to my taste, that whole night, I felt like my mouth was slightly numb.
1: Mm, that actually could be a sign of maybe a slight
0: Allergic allergy or something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I maybe never, they I'd, weren't
1: cooked enough. Maybe
0: I had never had that before with morels. But I distinctly remember wondering, should I have eaten that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, the hunt itself was fun, Brandon. I yeah. don't know if you've ever had anything similar when you've tasted. No, but I've actually had. A, I've heard of
2: people having that same reaction from morels. Yeah, mm. so, I have it too. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think it's it's an allergy. Yeah, is usually what it is.
1: So I'll say this is something that's I I have a couple food allergies, so it's front of mind for me. Usually, like rare, but just to be extra safe, because I know the allergies exist. Like when I had the chicken of the woods the first time I did eat a very small portion the first time. Test it out. Yeah. And I think, and then I finished the the leftovers later. So I think that that's always a good thing. Cause even though they're, they're safe to eat, you've identified them, right. You've done mm-hmm. all the checks and everything. It's still, it's, it's a new food. So, yep. or when you're introducing it to kids or something, I think that's probably a pretty good idea. Yeah. Something else with chanterelles. that's a easy giveaway for easier giveaway for them is their smell. People some people say it it smells kind of like a fruit, others like a citrus, but it's definitely like a bright kind of sweet aromatic, not that like umami earthy smell of other mushrooms. So that's something other than the the color and the shape and those like grooves on the side that can give it away.
0: So are you going to hunt for More of these now coming up. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think like chanterelles, I think after morels are like the quintessential mushroom that...
0: When you think of foraging, you think morels, then chanterelles, then chicken of the woods probably.
1: I think like chanterelles, they look like they're out of a fairy tale to me. If you were going to like imagine a fairy tale, like mushroom growing up out of a mossy ground, that like cute little thing. And yeah. So those, because they're cute, (laughs) that's going to be next for me. Um, but yeah, and I've tasted them before um, and thought they were delicious. A couple inches high. What else do we know about chanterelles?
0: I told you everything I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think probably because I didn't, I not that I didn't enjoy the taste, but because I was like, huh, that felt weird. Yeah. I just then haven't jumped right back out there to go find more. Maybe I should. Yeah. Yeah. I maybe that was just a one-time thing. and Maybe it wasn't like you said cooked correctly. Yeah, I love anything I can hunt for.
1: I do know that they grow in shade, like many mushrooms, so they're gonna they can be like anywhere in the forest. But you don't want to go in the sunny areas. You're probably gonna waste your time there. Um, Brandon, do you have any
0: any chanterelle information off the Wikipedia
1: for
2: well, us? I was just reading just to be cautious of the false chanterelle, um, ah. which is technically edible but tastes horrible mm. and can cause weird. Side effects as well. Mm. So Uh I'm not. There's there's a chance, but but it does caution to look for the false uh, chanterelle too, which is very similar in appearance, but it's got a couple distinguishing factors like having true gills, while Mm -hmm. chanterelles have folds. So it's little things like that where they I can was look was while on the job. It's possible. HR is going to hear about this. But, yeah, it, it does say there there is that sort of thing out there. But, um, yeah, it, it, the citrus type yeah. thing is, is something as well, which it sounds cool to me. Now yeah. I kind of want to look for them. And it, it is fun. It is a fun yeah, hunt, yeah, too. Yeah. Have
0: you ever tried them? No, I haven't.
2: No, I have to now. It yeah. sounds really good, yeah.
1: With both of these, two, the Chicken of the Woods and the Chanterelles, unlike Morel's, they don't have quite so deep of, you know, grooves in them. So to clean them, at least in my experience with mushrooms, typically like with morels, I soak them in salt water, but usually mushrooms are going to, you know, they absorb so much water that it can make them slimy. So with the chicken of the woods, I just brushed them off with a slightly damp brush, um, just to get kind of the, the dirt off of them. And then I stored them, I wasn't ready to cook them. And so I stored them in the fridge in a paper bag after I cleaned them, cleaning them first is, is the way to do it. But I stored them for two days before I cooked them and people say you can wait up to seven days, maybe even 10 days for both chicken of the woods and chanterelles. And I'll say I was starting to see them get just like a little bit more sad looking. They were fine. They were great. Mm. They were, but they were just like, they weren't quite so. Droopy. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know when the, you know, flavor change or anything like that, but I think you're good for a week. And then after that, you're going to have to look at, you know, freezing or drying, but eat them right Just like fish. Eat it right away if you can.
0: Speaking of fish, should we transition to fall fishing that's approaching? This episode of Do North Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Sportsman's Guide. For everything you need to enjoy the fun, freedom, and traditions of the outdoors, you got to check out sportsmansguide.com. From hunting and fishing to camping, hiking, and just hanging around a bonfire in the backyard, you'll find it all at Sportsman's Guide. Tree stands, blinds, rods, and reels, ATV accessories, and so much more. Clothing and footwear, too, from top-notch brands like ScentLock, Nomad, Mountain Hardware, Irish Setter, Danner. Ah, the list just keeps on going. Plus, a full line of firearms, ammo, and accessories. The bottom line, if it happens outdoors, you'll find it at Sportsman's Guide. Shop today at Sportsman'sGuide.com and use the code North for $20 off your first order. That's North, all one word, for $20 off your first order. We are almost in September. I don't like to I don't want to wish summer away, but there's one season of the year that I wait all year for, and it is fall. And if you hunt and fish, you will agree that fall does not last long enough. In my mind, it should last 10 of the 12 months. I wouldn't be willing to sacrifice two months. I need a little more winter. A little bit of winter. You so do you like winter? Is that winter's
1: my favorite season? Winter is your favorite season. And why? I'm going on record. Um uh, a few things. There's just so many activities to do, which some people would disagree with that. But And I mean good winter. I'm not loving it when it's like gray and minus 10 degrees or something like that. Although usually it's sunny when it's that cold. But I, it's magic. It's special. I, it feels like so many people in the world don't get it. So when you have, you know, you're, you know, able to have the right gear to keep you warm and stuff like that. Just like the magic of it. It's yeah. just so... I feel the healthiest. I feel the best. I just love winter.
0: In the winter. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, I love I like cross-country the, skiing, and I love snowshoeing, the fact, and all the, all the outdoor stuff, so...
0: Absolutely. I love the fact that by the time anyone, if they would get tired of an activity that's happening right now, it's already moving yes. on. You know what I mean? Like, for me, I go through this progression through my fishing season, open water season, and this is now when I start getting serious about my ski fishing. Mm. And... You know, we talked before we started recording. This is this is frog season if you're yeah. a bass angler. Like, there's a lot that's happening. It it can be warm at the end of August and September. The days can still be in the 80s, but the reality is it's a short amount of heat over the 24 hour period. Our nights are longer. There's a thing that happens in all animals, birds, deer, all animals in the woods, in the fields, but also in the fish too. That The length of night, they know things are changing. Even if it's warm outside, the water temperatures are starting to change. It's cooler, longer periods. So even if it gets to 80 degrees, it's only 80 degrees for an hour, maybe two hours. The majority of the time, it's cooler. So there's this cooling effect that's happening in the waters. And the fish, a lot of them that have been pushed into deeper water, are going to start coming up shallower. And anybody who fishes in the fall, the cooler periods are just. It's a lot of excellent fishing, but it's also a time when people are out in the fields and in the woods and hunting, and mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, I don't know what I want to do today. There's just too much going on, which is why I wish I had it for 10 months. But um, I think we can say, you know, for a lot of musky anglers, and Natalie, you spend a lot of time chasing muskies too. This is, I tell people in June when season starts, you know, there's just a built up excitement. Mm-hmm. They get after it, they get after it. And then it can... July and August can be okay. In
1: like, the Twin Cities, often you can't really because the you know, water temperatures are so too hot. high or yeah. if, you're, if you're south of here, yeah. yeah.
0: What I have always experienced is usually right around August 15th through August 23rd, let's say, somewhere in there, there's a day when we don't see the sun all day. It's misty, it's cool, it's windy. It's like that's the start of Muskie's making a big transition. A lot of those fish have been in deeper water, maybe suspended over the middle, but as that water starts to cool, you know, here in the metro, it's 82, 84 degrees. I've seen many times. Uh, now it's starting to get into where the fish are comfortable again. They like to slide up into shallower waters and they're they're like, they just go on this binge for a month or two. And it's the what I think is the best time of the year to be fishing mm-hmm. for muskies. Top water is That's in what play. I was going to say. Anyone, you know? I feel
1: like it's such like a, a cheat of an answer, but like for me, my, you know, it's like best way to catch any species of fish is top water. And this is the best mm-hmm. time. Like I love throwing just a, you know, prop style bait, Yep. light wind. Yep. Even yep. this time, I mean, they can, even if you've got a lot of waves and a lot of chop this time of year, they, those big kind of hefty prop baits,
0: Abs- Seen those
1: t- get slammed?
0: Lake of the Woods, or not like Lake Mille Lacs. Twenty years mm-hmm. ago, I can still picture it in my mind. It's five foot rollers, mm-hmm. and we were fishing. And I was throwing a topwater yeah. in five foot rollers. And the guy with me is like, "You're nuts!" And I'm like, "Watch this!" And we, I knew there was some fish on this patch of cabbage. And I throw it, and you could see the muskie like surfing down the roller, chasing the bait, and then uh, it would disappear behind. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And then it would come up over the top. And this fish just crushed it yeah. in five foot rollers. So That's you awesome. cannot have too much wind to catch a muskie on top yeah. of water. In fact, I like more wind. More wind gets everything moving and it seems like it creates better feeding windows for those fish. If I had to choose one time of the day, it would be the hour before sunrise. For, mm. Through the month of September, um, there's just this like the cooling effect, the comfortable yeah. of the fish. There's not a lot of people out there. I find that by the time the sun hits the horizon in the morning, I've already got multiple fish in the boat a lot of days. And then there's this other window that happens around 10 a.m. that I cannot explain why. Um, You see
1: that on many different lakes and different areas?
0: Yeah, I've seen that from Lake of the Woods to, you know, the metro here, streams. Uh, There's just this feeding window that seems to happen, and I can't explain why. Um, A friend of mine, Mike Tingwall, who I fished with 20 years ago. I'm a lax. He pointed it out to me one time and he's like, I don't know why, but 10 o'clock, there is always this chance. Like it could be flat, calm, sunny day and no action. And then all of a sudden there's just something that happens. So I always, I've, I picked up on that and I agree. And I've, I've logged many years of catches and there's a, there is something about the 10 o'clock.
1: All the non-morning people listening mm-hmm. are going to be like, okay, I'm good. I'm just going <laughs> to get out there 9:30." Yeah. Sleep in. But that's yeah. that's interesting.
0: Well, when I was a full-time muskie fishing guide, I learned that the pressure can really di- dictate the feeding patterns of those fish. Because it's not like a bass or walleye that you're in a school of them and you're catching a dozen or 20 or whatever. You're out there for one
1: bite. Yeah. And,
0: you know, and that one bite could make your whole year or a lifetime for some people that travel across the country to do it. And I learned that there was that window. Yeah. And I... I told people it's worth your time. Let's get up at four o'clock. I'll meet you at four 30 and you get an hour of fishing before anybody else is out there in the darkness. And then it starts, you know, you got a little over an hour of actual visible light before the sun rises yeah. and that's the best hour.
1: When you're talking pressure, or, do you mean pressure dropping?
0: No, pressure fish. from you out Pressure there from anglers. And okay. Everybody else out Never there. Never mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But How
1: about though? Okay. So fishing pressure. Okay. Yep. That makes of course. But what about pressure in terms of, you know, the weather? Because
0: mm-hmm. uh, I've so I let's used get to technical think then. low
1: pressure yeah. catch fish. So, you know, if you don't have, you know, an app or something that tells you pressure, okay, cloudy days, this and that, go catch fish. But I've learned over the years dropping pressure is actually better than sustained low pressure. And I was gonna ask if you have a favorite, sure. you know, app or tool to use or if you've you've witnessed that too.
0: So I would say any change in the environment is going to trigger a feeding window. What I would some are gonna be more aggressive, some are gonna be larger feeding windows, but I always tell people this there's four key feeding times every day for a muskie. And I would say this also applies to other fish, but more more so in muskies you you see it because your chances are so few versus, you know, like in a lot of lakes, the population is so small. And when they turn on, you might get one or two bites a day. Or if you're really good, you know, them and you can catch multiple fish, but sunrise and sunset, those are two key feeding times each day. Moonrise and moonset are two more key feeding times. Any change that happens... Moon
1: overhead, moon underfoot.
0: Yep. That's, that's another one. But Um, in addition to that, if the wind direction changes, if clouds roll in, if a storm's coming in, if it's been cloudy all day and all of a sudden the sun comes out, it's amazing what might trigger them to feed. And what I've learned is that typically if it turns one on, it turns all of them on. So you get these windows where you might be fishing for four hours and you'll see nothing. And in a 20 minute span, you get three bites and two more follows. You see five muskies in like 20 casts. You catch a couple and you're like, that was awesome. And then nothing for three more hours again. You just had a feeding window. And a lot of musk anglers learn over the years to, to figure out what those windows are. What I was mentioning to you before in regards to the pressure, there's more people fishing for that fish than there are fish in the lakes yeah. that they're fishing right now. And especially here in the metro area. And so if you kind of like I noticed the conditions can be awesome. Prime wind, some mist, some cool. It's just ideal musky conditions, but it's 6 p.m. Two dozen boats out. But it's 6 p.m., yeah. and it's nothing compared to what the, con- what the bite was like that morning because I think there's a lot of people that get off work. The lakes get busy. It just seems to have an effect on the fish. After a night of nothing happening out there, It's dark you sneak out there quietly you're the first thing that fish sees and they say oh i'm going to crush that so you get these big explosions in that twilight morning light it's just magical
1: yeah along the lines of the the shifts in um uh you know anything that's going on out there that's a really good um or a good thing to keep in mind is and something that you're really good at and is actually like taking notes and keeping record of things cuz i feel like for me Sometimes I'll like get so excited after I catch a fish that you're just like in excitement mode and then it'll be like an hour and a half later. And it's like, what what was happening when I caught that fish? I don't even remember. But if you do start paying attention, you'll notice even little things like the second, mm-hmm. the second the, the sun came out, like not 20 minutes later, like 30 seconds later, Yeah, you'll get a chance or something like that or yeah. a wind shift. So if you can start recording it, that'll encourage you to pay attention and, and to learn from it.
0: For sure. Every everything in the outdoor world goes through seasonal changes just like we do. Fish, ducks, deer, wild, everything goes through that seasonal change. So if you can put together, and I've talked about this a lot on our TV shows, as well as to anybody else that asks, um, I always just say, keeping a journal will help you to understand what to expect when that time of year comes back next time. And... It'll help you find that success again, but also avoid the failures that you made, too. And overall, it just makes you a much better angler, in particular to fishing. And a lot of those fish go through from their spawning in the spring to their midsummer to their fall. They will go to the exact same rock. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the crazy part. I caught the same exact muskie on the same exact rock on the same moon phase in September over the course of a six-year window, multiple times on one rock in the middle of a patch of milfoil, and it was on the same lure every time.
1: Do you know muskies in rivers? How they'll like many river fish, they'll um, like stage up right behind a rock so Mm -hmm. to catch, you know, fish that are flowing downstream. Ambush, ambush exactly. They will get so close to those rocks, and they will, to your point, stay right next to those rocks. You know, for much of their life, they will start getting. This is something I've I've learned from Chris Willen, who's a guide and, and guides a lot out of rivers. They will actually get indents on their face from, from pushing, pushing against. Yeah, Isn't I believe crazy? that. Yeah. yeah,
0: they're weird. And also, as long as we're talking muskies here, they're not they're not territorial. That's a myth. I don't know who started it. The reason I think it came up is because you can go back to a spot and that fish will be there again. And so you think, wow, it's guarding its area. That's not true. That Muskies are ambush predators. They're opportunistic feeders. They're going to attack something that looks wounded, easy to catch. um, And they'll hide or position themselves on, maybe it's a rock in the middle of a big flat of sand or um, something about the the turn in the weeds that they'll hide in there because it allows them to kind of back in and, They're fast. They can attack anything that comes swimming across the edge. But the reality is that if it looks good to one muskie, it looks good to every muskie swimming pass. And I have seen times in a 30-foot by 30-foot area where I've seen more than a dozen muskies laying there together. So they're not territorial. They just, unless they're forced out of their hiding spot, you know, their prime feeding area, they're going to hang there. And when you find those locations, they're going to be good almost every year at the same time there, you, you know, you can, you can repeat your success every single year. That's why keeping a journal is so important. My brain works in a really strange way. Like I we
1: know, Travis, I, it's know.
0: Okay. I can remember like every spot, you know, yeah, and I'm like, exactly. okay, the wind is doing this. I need to go here. Like in my mind, I'm thinking 10 steps ahead of where I need to be Yeah. based on, okay, 20 minutes here, five minutes here, 10 minutes. Like, I don't explain this to the people that I'm fishing with, but in my mind, it's already working and they're talking about life and this and that. And I'm like, okay, stop, pay attention for me yeah. right now, right there, get ready, get ready. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, just trust me on this. There's yeah. one there. They're like, well, how do you know? And I'm like, I just know. Yeah. And sometimes it comes flying up and when the window opens and sometimes it doesn't, but when it does, mm. it's just like.
1: Yeah. It's just yeah. so cool. It's yeah, just no, so it, cool yeah. to see it come Very together. Very gratifying. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So moving away from muskies, we mentioned a little bit, uh, bass fishing. Yeah. So this is my favorite time of year to fish from shore for bass because it's, I like to be able to shore fish cause you can get out for, you know, 90 minutes or something in the morning and you know, a little bit less set up than getting a kayak out there. I know you probably can get your boat on the lake and running in about three minutes at this point, but really good time of year to fish from shore because the fish are going to be there, especially if you can find a spot that's got some nice, you know, lily pads and uh, coverage oh, lily, like that. Lily pads it's,
0: and muck this time yes. of the year. Yep.
1: Yeah. And with when you're fishing with a hollow body frog, you don't need to be afraid about, I mean, you need a hefty setup. You need some, mm-hmm. you know, good braided line and, and a good rod, but you can drag those bass. They'll eat right in the middle of muck. I'm they like, what are you, su- you strange creature, up, what um, are you, all yeah. Full of muck. yeah, I yeah. call it bass salad, sometimes you can bring in a bass, and it takes you a second to even find the bass right. in the, the mess of <laughs> muck, but that's my, yeah, yep. people it's, probably know by now, it's my favorite way to catch I'm well aware of that, but yeah. it's
0: a lot of people's favorite way, because yeah. it's a, it's the thrill of the explosion, and yep. I think that's why you probably love muskies so much, because it's a visual thing, you exactly. see a lot of yeah. the strikes, especially top water. When I take my kids out, like my son, he's all jacked up right now. Yeah. He's like, Dad, we gotta get the frog out. Yeah. I know, but we gotta find the right stuff.
1: And it's so um, fun when you start like you're like literally playing a game with them. Cause you can start, you know, you'll see some, you know, water push and some movement and you mm-hmm. know that there's bass nearby. And then that's when you can play around with your, you know, your pauses and your little twitches. And when you do, when you know a fish is there, cause you can see the water kind of pushing and you maybe throw in a pause and then have it explode. You're ah, like, I got you. The rush. Cuz it is so visual. It's not like you're, you know, jigging or something and I mean.
0: Yeah. And yeah. it and it's funny too that a lot of the times I was trying to film a a video talking about fishing topwater lures and so we were filming it and I threw it along this edge of this muck and I just pulled it out and like a 48-inch muskie just exploded on it. I was trying to do a, a tutorial on how to catch fish on this wow. or how to catch bass. And this muskie just
1: wow. annihilated
0: it, went airborne. Did I was get, like, did you get that? Did you get any like, hooks in that? Probably yeah, not. Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't it it bit right through the 50-pound yeah. test spray that I had on. Um so but it is exciting and other fish will eat it as well. And the yeah. reason why this is, you know, there's I a migration pike
1: hollow body frogs. Yeah.
0: A lot of those bass are migrating up into the shallows. Frogs are going to migrate into the lakes in the fall and that's why there's so much success using it late summer and fall it's just a, it's a fun time and obviously a lot of the other bass style uh baits too yeah. so i i posted a couple of pictures of my kids we were fishing this last week and we got into some smallmouth bass and i did get a couple of questions from people uh hey what do you like what's your go to bass smallmouth bass bait mm-hmm. right now and so there are a couple of things that I love to use, and it's no secret the Ned Rig is, is one of them for smallmouth. I feel like smallmouth on lakes are sometimes a little bit different in the way they fish because current dictates a lot on rivers and streams, and there's a lot of smallmouth streams in the Midwest. So um, <clears throat> this one guy in particular asked about what I like to use. And I, and I gave them two different answers because I said, if I'm going out on a lake right now, and I think these smallmouth are going to be on boulders or, you know, something that mimics a crayfish or the Ned Rig is kind of what I'm going to in deeper water. And we were catching them in 20 feet of water. And this was the last weekend or you know, mid August, late August. Um, but if I'm going to, a a stream, uh, one of my favorite things is the white zoom super fluke. Have you ever used them?
1: Yeah, weightless uh, on yeah on the Mississippi. Yeah, you go in weightless. the spring, but yep,
0: yeah. it's great all year long. But you can twitch it, you know, and uh-huh. work it really fast. And I kind of explained it to this guy how I fish it. It's I fish it weightless and cast it out, and you're twitching it really yeah. fast, reeling it in, and it looks like this wounded minnow darting through the surface. A smallmouth bass is going to instinctively come flying up, mm-hmm. and a lot of times, a lot of times they, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of times they miss because you're going so erratic yeah. and so fast, but it's the erratic. How do you get
1: around that? Is there a the, way that you can? So the
0: erratic nature gets this fish to attack, come flying up instinctively, even if they're not hungry, because it's like, oh, I gotta eat that, you know? Um, and the second I see that, that boil behind the bait, I pause, I let the line go slack. I want that to look like, oh, it got stung by the fish or yeah. something. Like there's something else about a dying fish sinking straight down. So even though they missed it, Usually usually will make this big loop and they'll kind of look mm. back like
1: big swirl. Yeah. yeah. And then all of
0: a sudden you just watch if your line goes slack, you just watch the line. The line will s- kind of snap and tick and be like, gotcha. Boom. And so that's, yeah. that's a killer way to do it. And it's when, funny.
1: Cause we're kind of helping the fish, but helping ourselves. And it's the same. We yeah. should mention too, with, with topwater fishing. I mean, yeah. it, it's reminiscent with both, you know, if you're musky fishing or, or fishing for bass on topwater, you have to let the fish get the bait, because yeah. people have a tendency to, you know, go to set the hook. They get excited when they see the explosion, but you have to wait until you feel some pressure on at the end of the line. Otherwise, you're just going to rip it right out of the mouth. And it sounds <sighs> like it's the same with the fluke.
0: Two weeks ago, we were on Lake of the Woods, and I had a first-timer in the boat muskie fishing, and I had located this muskie on the rock that actually missed the bait the day before. So I, we go to this spot, prime time, right, sunset, and I'm like, all right, guys, it's right there. And he casts the bait out, second cast on the spot. And we had fished hours beforehand, but I'm like, guys, we know there's one here. We came back to this specific spot because there's a nice, large fish here. And he's throwing a topwater bait. And I, and I go, he's coming. Get ready. Like, I don't remember how I said it, but he's in the back of the boat casting. Oh no. I'm not fishing. I can fish. His it buddy's happening. in the front, and I'm just driving the trolling motor along this this rock spine that comes off an island and I go, yo, here he comes like to get him ready for it. He looks at me. He's like, what? And I look back. I'm like, no, he's on yours. And here's a submarine breaking, you know, like the water breaking behind the bait, coming through the waves. Mouth comes open to overtake the bait and he gets so excited. Sets the hook. The lure comes 20 feet out of the water before the muskie could even grab it. So like when you have to
1: duck, cause the lure is coming straight to the boat. Followed
0: by several curse words, yep. jumping on the boat, fish is gone all that time that he put into it. Like yeah. he's addicted now. Yeah. He's probably in the past week, probably purchased a couple baits, a new rod. Like he fishes, but never yeah. musky before. Now he's like, that was just a life changing experience. Yeah. But it goes back to the point when you get a musky or a bass or something to commit to eating it, everyone's like, Oh, I got to set the hook instantly. On any topwater presentation, no matter what you're fishing for, the number one rule, and I tell people this, try to just keep retrieving the steady retrieve. Even though they might feel the weight of your rod as you're reeling, that's okay because when they grab it, that's their meal. They don't want to let go. There's, there are several times in the fall when people fish suckers, as you know, Natalie, that you might reel that, that fish in and it never actually it never gets, gets hooked. hooked. That's how hard they clamp down. If somebody's reeling in a bass and a northern grabs onto that, or a walleye up in Canada, how many times have you heard stories of somebody say, I was reeling in a walleye and a northern latched on, and we netted the northern, Mm -hmm. or a muskie grabbed the bass? That illustrates exactly what I'm saying. There's no need to set the hook too early because when they grab on, that's their food. You can put a lot of pressure on it before they're gonna let go. So I explain that to people, and I say what you should do is keep reeling, the same speed. Because if you got an eight and a half foot rod and you flinch at the end of that, if, yeah. even if it's a one inch flinch here, that's 12 inches on the end of your rod. By the time your rod moved, that's just fine enough to get your bait out of the fish's mouth. And now you don't get that, that bass, that musky, whatever it might be. So just keep reeling slow as she goes and let it eat. Let the fish take it, go down then give them the business.
1: Yeah. And along these lines, everyone will have... One if not many of yeah. these that you want to take back. You're gonna oh, have yes. a huge muskie, yeah. a huge bass, whatever, you're gonna you're gonna rip a bait out of a fish's mouth. And mm-hmm. just see it as one step closer to the next one. Because it does it takes practice to get your, you know, unless you're one of those people that just have these exceptional nerves, it it's a lot to get used to. Adrenaline yeah. is high. So just know when it happens to you, when it happens to your kid, whatever. One step closer to the next catch because it happens to everyone, and then it yeah, it just makes you that much more ready the next time it happens. Absolutely, yeah. Practice, you know, count to three if you need to. Take
0: a deep <laughs> yeah. breath. I do tell people that. I say yeah. count to two or, after the explosion yeah. while still reeling the exact same speed. When your rod starts to load up naturally from the weight of the fish, that's when you take them. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, I've had fish miss up to, I want to say like five or six times in a single cast. Yeah. As long as you keep the same steady retreat, mm-hmm. they'll keep coming. I've had that one small you, mouth on a spook, yeah, the second and it just you, keeps
1: going. And I was yes, like, And eventually, come on, come yeah, on, you and run I out of eventually room. eventually got it. Yeah. It was so
0: fun. On the top water, people often ask, what do you do on a figure eight? Mm. What I tell them on a top water is about 10 feet from the boat, if they're still following, I drop the rod tip down three, two, three feet in the water. And I want to make that lure dive like it's trying to get away, and then the big turn comes as they're following it, and that seems to trigger them. It's not as it's not as successful as a lot of the subsurface baits that you'd Mm. be throwing, but it does work.
1: Yeah, I tend to just do the the speed up ten feet out from the boat, but I will get some depth on the figure eight.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So don't you can mix and match. Yeah. Some people think it's got to stay on top. It does not. Yeah. From my personal experience, I've caught more while bringing the bait under the surface than I have keeping it on top, I'm trying that.
1: I will say I've never caught one on the figure eight subsurface, but I've had them continue to follow. But I've always had the hit when it's on the surface. But sure, let's. Uh, while we're talking about it, yeah. speed of your retrieval for musky fishing in a prop bait this time of year.
0: You can't out- reel a fish right now. This is the time of the year where speed kills. Speed is deadly. The best musky anglers that I know are the ones that have Popeye biceps. Yeah. <laughs> like, they are burning the bait. So my favorite technique, like if somebody had a gun to my head and said, you have to catch a muskie, I would be burning a small bucktail mm-hmm. right now. So when these fish move up shallow, it doesn't matter if you're on Cass Lake, Leech Lake, Lake of the Woods, Minnetonka, wherever you're at, when they slide up shallow, they have this, when, when something burns past them, and I'm talking you're a couple inches under the surface, the speed triggers them, and you get a lot of bites. So water is fun. It's not as exhausting and wearing, but speed is awesome this time of year, and there's no way to out-retrieve a muskie. they that fast.
1: So you're going to be fishing this fall. You're going to be doing some foraging. You're going to be doing some hunting too. Tell us about your hunting plans.
0: Uh, so what, What's
1: first on the agenda?
0: Well, tonight I'm taking my dog to a friend of mine. We're going to do some training with her, get her into game shape. Um, he's actually going to take her to Montana because I'm going to be gone for the opener out there. Um, and so he's going to take her to hunt for sharptail grouse, which is what we did last year in the opener. And it's a great way for her to have a lot of contact with wild birds. If you're training dogs, there's no substitute for wild bird because it teaches your dog a lot as long as you have built a foundation which is what her and i have spent a lot of time on you'll notice when we walk around she's always looking at me for the direction and because she knows our role and what our relationship is and uh, i'm the alpha you know in a dog world yeah every canine needs that that's why a pack of wolves have the lead in the pack of dogs every breed it's the same way they you're the owner they look to you so the fundamentals are there we're going to train I'm excited about that, but then she's gonna stay out there for a little bit and go with my buddy, George Lyle. I am really excited, also a little bit nervous, because my first shoot of the season for the Upland bird hunting show that we produce, called The Flush is going to be a ptarmigan hunt in Alaska. And so I'm heading to the last frontier, which is a little intimidating because we need to get up in the mountains. And I have a buddy that's been up there for the last two weeks, and he's hunting them for the first time, and he's like, "It's the most painful thing I've ever done," and he's like, "I'm not going back to do it." It Weather-wise, or
1: elevation-wise, or what's the just the terrain, the
0: terrain and the thickness of everything. Are you be bushwhacking? He did a lot of that. I've done some
1: bushwhacking in Alaska. Yeah, so it's
0: he was putting on like 15 miles a day on feet. You know, it's because it's just a matter of getting to where the birds are. Uh, It always makes me nervous when I'm bringing a cameraman along to follow, Yeah. Um, but we're going to do some fishing as well when we're up there. Um, I don't know how, like, weather's going to dictate this entire journey that we're going on. Um, So there's a chance we might do a fly-in to a a lake up in the mountains, and that in itself, like, it just seems too good to be true. Mm -hmm. I'm nervous about it. I don't know why, I guess I, you know, we're filming this for our shows and, and we'll be able to show people, but, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, like, I'm, I'm just excited about it, but also there's a lot of unknowns. It's big, it's big wilderness. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. And so I need to be prepared. I need to have Pete, our cameraman prepared. And so that's high on my list. Uh, and that's really dominating everything. And then when we come home, um, you know, we've got doves, dove opener. I can, I love going dove hunting because it's beautiful outside. It's warm. They're tasty little birds. uh, But also I've been taking my kids with on it. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to get them out there to see the dog out there hunting with them and retrieving the birds. So that's cool for them. uh, But also it's nice out there. Yeah. You know, so that's fun. Along with the early goose season. And then grouse season opens up. Like It's all happening. It's coming at us like a fire hose pretty soon.
1: What age can you or do you recommend um, for eager kids? What age as a parent would you let your kids start getting into like the the gun safety and actually taking them along?
0: So the state of Minnesota, you have to be 11 years old to take gun safety training. But you can hunt before that. My son has shot two turkeys already. He shot his first one when he was 6 years old, the second one when he was 7. You can small game hunt with them with, as a parent with them within arm's distance. Uh, you can take them out. So there are, you'd want to read up the laws. Mm-hmm. My recommendation to people has always been this. Bring them along whenever they show signs that they're interested in it. Make it about them. Make it fun. Make it short. Don't make it painful. a mm-hmm. like cold, windy, yeah. rainy day. Don't, don't make that the day that they sit out there all day long. But uh, short little... Uh, trips until they want to stay longer and then just one step at a time one step at a time and i've found that by bringing my kids with even though they haven't been hunting themselves they've been a part of it they've been waking up early we get donuts in the blind you know things yeah. that make them excited like we got donuts again. oh yeah we have songs that we play on the way out that get them excited yeah. you know and the just being a part of it i think i hope will lead to them wanting to continue to it's a,
1: what, yeah. what's next or how do we go
0: next and and just
1: they... like going back to fall foraging when I brought my nieces and nephews along we found all sorts of things yes. know that, was, that you know in every single thing that they found whether it be acorns or birch bark or I made a joke about this on Instagram but this like really huge worm that we saved no matter what it is it's like yeah let's look at this let's You know, there's moss growing on the tree. It doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that, you know, if you're foraging, it doesn't need to be all about the one mushroom you are looking at. If you're fishing, it doesn't need to be about, you know, catching the fish. It's getting the kids excited about the entire experience is going to keep them coming back.
0: Yeah, we've touched on this many times already, but just like yesterday my dad took my two boys and then my nephew out, and then I have been teaching them how to clean fish already too. Safely, we do it one at a time. But they're a part of that process now, too. And then when they get to be a part of that and the eating, it just for them, it's just so normal. And it's just so a part of who they are and it's part of who I am. So it's important to me. But by including them in all those steps, it it just really helps them see the whole process and appreciate it, I think, which is important.
1: Speaking of including others. Are you going to be able to include uh, myself and the Do North Outdoors podcast listeners on your Alaska trip?
0: I think so. I plan to bring this up. Now, I wish I could bring Brandon with. I wish you, could. I wish you guys could all <laughs> He's come giving
1: with. an evil glare. I would love like, to go I
0: know. I will bring the equipment up there. And I... So... Like I mentioned, the weather is going to dictate where we're able to go. If we're able to fly in, I've had a near death experience flying in Alaska and I don't want that again. So I will say, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'll just, we'll walk to this one, you know, and pass on the flight. in. I
1: imagine the pilots are very experienced with bad weather and know when to not just not go. They are a lot of flights get canceled. Yeah.
0: That's what I thought too. And then all of a sudden the pilot 20 minutes later said, there's a gap in the storm. Get in, get in. Let's go. And we, we did get in and go and it scared me. And we did a 360. I think I explained this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't want that again. So, but the bush pilot that we're going to fly with, if we do, he's got a lifetime of stories up there. There's a couple of young guys, my age, our age that, um, they made a life up there for themselves too. And there's something pretty cool about Alaska, the last frontier. And I want to get into their stories a little bit. So, I think you're going to get a week off, Natalie, and I'll take it for a week. And hopefully it's a, it's a cool journey that we'll be able to share when yeah. we're out there.
1: Looking forward to it. Same. We'll hold you to it. Do your very best. I'll do my best. And if not, we're going to do, do something if I get else out, great. Though, I
0: don't know. There's probably going to be a grizzly bear on the trail, and then we're stuck in there. And who knows, 20 miles into the mountains.
1: My parents were just up in Alaska. They saw some brown bears. Scary? Mm, from a distance. Uh, but yeah, it was, they were looking for them. They were with a group, some professionals Showing when we get, them, when so. we get off
0: of this call, I've, I've seen got brown to...
1: bear in Alaska when have I was camping. You? Yeah. Two, actually. they are ways away.
0: Not in your camp.
1: Not in our Yeah. No. We were doing all the, you know, obviously when you're up there, you have to take bears very carefully. So we were doing all the precautions. Um, but yeah, it's cool to see them from a distance. But That's... when you're in Alaska, I mean, we, we were making... Entire time we're hiking, making noise, yelling to try to you know let them know you're coming. Exactly, because they surprise don't want to see you. That's the yeah. thing. So
0: when I get off of this, when we're finished here, I've got a call with one of the guys up there, and I, we we're gonna go through our list, like what do we need, and are we ready for bears? What do we need to do there? Because we will be, like I said, ten miles away from yeah. a road or people in the middle of you know just on a one day hiking spot. That doesn't include if we fly in somewhere. And what we might find when we get into those places. So like I said, I'm excited, but I'm also a little cautious yeah. going into it because I want to be safe and responsible and also take care of my my guy that is following us with the
1: camera. I mean, that's always a way to approach nature, no yeah. matter where you are. Yeah. It's be excited, but be, be responsible, be cautious, recognize, you know, the dangers that do exist and prepare yep. accordingly.
0: Yeah, I'll probably end up doing a little researching on the Sportsman Guide before I go and (laughs) do a couple last things. So with that, I think we should say thanks to them for helping us to make this show possible. And we'll be back from the last frontier on our next episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast.